I'd like to welcome onto the show Rabina Ahmed Hawk. She's a finance, a personal finance expert and friend of the show. Welcome to the program. Good to have you on, Rabina. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So Monday's Facebook outage, let's start there. It was a massive wake-up call for small businesses that depend on Instagram to do business. Can you provide some perspective on these very hard-learned lessons? Yeah, so there's two stories that are coming out of the Facebook outage that people, you know, outside of just being annoyed that they couldn't send messages or upload pictures onto Instagram, uh, had real, real economic impacts. One is that traders, so those people who trade money, often use WhatsApp, the WhatsApp platform, to exchange information quickly. Now, it's not recommended. Uh, obviously, the financial institutions that employ those people say that you shouldn't be using these uh, platforms to exchange information. But if you're working all the way across the world, WhatsApp is an, you know, an easy, excellent way to not just send the message, but see that the message has been, has been received create groups. We all have our WhatsApp uh, groups. We know exactly how it works. And so when you're using it from a perspective of a trader, um, if that's the only way that you would get in touch with someone across the world, it can cause a real disruption. So that was one major effect. And the other is there are so many businesses that are completely reliant on Instagram. And for obvious reasons, you can create a beautiful page pretty easily with pictures. You can have links to your business. You can have, you know, your price list up there and all those things. But if Instagram goes down, your business goes down. And so there was companies even here in, in Toronto that were saying that they were panicking uh, because they didn't know how long the outage was going to be. And when it came back, if they were going to have all that same data that they had uploaded, uh, because they're, they're, they relied on it to not just uh, get new business, but connect with clients, make money, and then all the effort they put into curating all those photos. Yeah, I was uh, reading about uh, one a store in particular makes roughly $250,000 in net sales a year, and they have their eggs in, in one basket, that being Instagram. It's basically the Instagram page, their account is akin to a physical store. That's where they do their advertising. That's where they show people what they have, the products. And they couldn't communicate with customers or suppliers on WhatsApp. It was a nightmare situation. I'm just curious on if this will, you know, give a big boost to Shopify or Amazon Marketplace. You know, those stores that came became dependent and built their business around Instagram saying, okay, we need more than one platform here. 100%. I think that this is a cautionary tale for those people who are relying on any platform, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, as their sole way of generating business to diversify. So to create a web page, to have some sort of physical presence somewhere that people can get in touch with you, have a phone number that's out there published other than on your social media sites. And this is also a cautionary tale for those people who are building their brand through Instagram. So a lot of people are making a lot of money by becoming Instagram famous and and so this is something that is very much uh, relying on the reliability of, of, uh, of a platform that you have absolutely no control over. Now, people may argue you could open a store on a street and that street could have something devastating happen and nobody wants to come to that street anymore. That's true. You know, that, that that's happened where areas have fallen out of favor for whatever reason because something got built at the end of it and nobody wants to travel there anymore. But... Um, this is, you know, this is much more different when you are, you know, really just relying on a software of, and, and, and the company exists not even in Canada. So there's really zero protection for your business. So diversify, make sure that you can be found somewhere other than your Instagram page. 
Throughout this pandemic, we have heard stories about people because they're not going into work, they're working remotely, or they're, you know, you weren't unable to go out because of lockdowns, socking money away, saving money. But according to the LifeWorks Financial Wellbeing Index, a third of us still living paycheck to paycheck with little or no safety net. Can you expand on the findings in the report? Yeah, so in this report, I found it really interesting. So it kind of talks about what I've been talking about, the haves and the have-nots. So the one-third that you're talking about that are living paycheck to paycheck, they're also saying that um, you know, even a $2,000 expense that was come up in an emergency, you know, a repair in the home or something that they have to spend money on, they'd be unable to cover that. Uh, they'd have no resources, no line of credit, no credit card, nowhere to go to get that money. But one thing I found the most interesting about this is that the situation, financial situation for men has improved over the pandemic. What, what, whether that be because they've been able to keep their jobs or they've been able to pay down debt because they haven't had extra expenses. But women have seen their financial situation deteriorate and women young people have seen their situation deteriorate at the highest level and parents have also seen it. So if you are a young female parent, uh, you are in the worst situation right now because you've maybe had to take time off of work because you have to deal with your children being out of school because the schools were shut down mostly last year. Um, you've had seen maybe seen your job stop and start because many of the female dominated industries are the ones that have been most impacted by the pandemic. So hospitality, tourism, restaurants, all these places where we see a lot of women working have been the ones that have been most affected. Salons have been the most uh, affected by the shutdowns. So even though what they're saying is, um, you know, one third of Canadians, that means two thirds of Canadians are living, you know, beyond, they, they are having some money left over after their, their pay period is over, which is great news. But there's still a subset of people, specifically women, young women and parents who are, who are struggling more than the average Canadian. Um, does this also speak to uh, pay inequity uh, between the genders? Because if your partner makes more money than you do throughout this pandemic, especially, and one of you has to kind of give up the gig or uh, stay at home with the kids, it's probably going to be the, the uh, person making less. Yeah, I mean, pay equity has been... Um in my opinion, it, it, it's the it's the solution to how we're going to get out of this pandemic. So pay equity, um, often people say, well, equal pay for equal work. It's actually equal pay for equal value of work. And I think that's the way we mm. have to think about pay equity. So it's not about right. this doctor and this doctor, are they making the same pay? It's about does, you know, does the secretary that does the work that gets the patients through the door, what's her value of work? And is she being paid the same value as someone who's bringing that similar value into that company? Um, you know, female dominated industries like teaching and nursing are often uh, underpaid compared to other more male dominated industries wow. like construction and, and policing. And so these are the real things that we need to address as we move out of the pandemic is these are jobs that are valuable in our economy. Are we paying them uh, an equal uh, rate of pay to encourage women who have dropped out of the workforce to come back and to not only come back, but say, I can afford to send my kid to childcare. I can afford uh, to live in the house that I'm living in uh, with, with the pay that you're going to be giving me. And I don't have to move way out of the city to, to, buy, to, to buy a home or to, to, to live the kind of lifestyle that I, I, that I want. Another interesting uh, stat that was uh, punctuated inside this study is 74% of respondents are willing to leave a job that they are happy with for an increase of salary. But according to a new poll by RBC Insurance, I read that almost half of the younger workers, like 18 to 35 in, in Canada, 
say that uh, companies' benefit plans haven't done enough for their health and well-being over the past year and that the majority of them would prioritize a job with great benefits over one with a higher salary and no benefits. I mean, those don't seem to be uh, in conjunction with each other. They're opposing. So how much stock do we put in these polls, Rabina? Yeah, I mean, I I was really surprised by this RBC poll. I mean, salary is king, in my opinion. Um, I've been covering workplace as long as I've been covering personal finance. And um, survey over survey shows to me that um, in the end, a person will choose a job with the higher salary over group benefits. You know, they don't they don't worry so much about how many massages are going to get paid for or how, uh, you know, how much prescription is going to be covered. They're concerned about what's the bottom line? How much am I going, am I going to get paid? But one thing that this this poll does tell you is that company culture matters so if you have good great group benefits if you are supporting your employees mental health if you're uh, if you're supporting their overall well-being which is paramount right now in the pandemic is that that just gives your company a good reputation so it's able to, to able to attract people who are talented to say you know my friend works there or my cousin works there and they 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 say the company is really good to them it's really supported them so it's more um, I think this more speaks to uh, where a company that has good group benefits may not be attracting the young people because of the benefits, but because the, what the benefits are doing, it may make the company more attractive to work at. Rabina, Elvis Stoiko took out a $6.5 million life insurance policy on his parents, and he said he had no idea why it ended up offshore. I think it ended up in Belize. This is something we found out on Monday with the uh, release of the Pandora Papers. Um, he said basically he was dealing with uh, a, a lot of stress after you know losing in the 1998 Winter Games, his hopes dashed of getting that gold by injury, and it left him feeling like a failure. He goes down to Mexico, leaves all of his finances in control of a lawyer that he trusted, and, um, and basically said, you know, my financial matters were not really at the forefront of my mind. I'm I'm wondering how common a thing is uh, uh, how common uh is this sort of uh idea of leaving your finances in the hands of someone that you feel is uh, more capable than yourself like how illiterate are we when it comes to our finances I think that there are a lot of good examples of people. If you speak to them, they say, I don't know where my, what my money's doing. My financial advisor takes care of all of it. Um, that when they dig deeper and they find out what fees they're paying or how their investments are actually doing, that they may be surprised that they're, they're not in the situation that they thought they were in. I mean, I don't know the, the details of Elvis Stoiko, what his relationship was, but from what I understand, uh, the, the lawyer that he dealt with, the financial advisor that he dealt with in Montreal was known for being able to shelter money in tax havens. This was something his reputation, uh, that, that was his reputation. So I don't know whether ignorance is the best excuse when it comes to, oh, I didn't know that I had six and a half million dollars in a in an offshore account. Because, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll take it back to this. I one time made a mistake on my tax return. I called the CRA. I sort of did a mea culpa. And their answer to me was ignorance is not an excuse. Like you should have yeah. known. Right. And so and that was like, I think I had to pay $80 in interest. It wasn't even that big of a deal in the end. But I was really surprised with the fact that they were not understanding that I didn't do it by purpose. I didn't yeah, mean yeah. to. Right. Sure. They were like, sorry, sorry. So I think it's the same um, attitude that this is on a much grander scale. There is nothing illegal about offshore accounts. What's illegal is when you take money that you haven't paid tax on and shelter it in another country. So this is, you know, I think when the the Panama Papers were released, it's something like 800 trillion or 800, uh, I, I, 
I don't know the exact amount of money, but there's so much money that is not being paid uh, yeah. and, and, and that's not being collected in tax revenue that uh, that hurts people, that hurts public services, that hurts um, you know programs that help people that are uh, not million and billionaires. And so uh, that's the issue that I have mm-hmm. is that it's not really about you putting your money in an offshore account and not knowing about it, is that did you pay the proper amount of tax on it? And it sounds like what he did wasn't necessarily illegal. It just It just kind of doesn't pass the sniff test because he's kind of grouped in with all these kind of oligarchs and politicians and all these people that we sort of associate sort of dirty money with. Um, I think that's kind of what got him into, like got him into the news in, in a bad light. All right, Rabina, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, g- giving us some insight on some of these headlines today and have yourself a great day. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good one. Rabina Ahmed-Hawk is a personal finance expert for 640 Toronto.